Welcome back, everyone. If it works to have your video on, for me, it's nice to be able to see people. So the last three times that I've been here, I've been exploring how to bring our practice to differences and conflicts. And it's been important right from the beginning to give a clear definition of what I mean, particularly by conflict. And I've talked about conflicts as helpful to be seen as involving differences in goals or values or views or strategies and not necessarily as involving any hostility or aggression. So not necessarily the way we might often think about conflict, which as I've mentioned is related to a very, very common conditioning that, that when I asked, about two-thirds of the group had to be uh, generally <clears throat> avoidant of conflict, often with an upbringing in which we, for different reasons, we may have been scared of conflict. So redefining it that way, we've been exploring uh, conflicts and looking at them on many different levels, looking at uh, inner conflicts. Should I stay in this job or not? Should I, uh, you know, should I uh, visit this friend or that friend? Can be very ordinary differences that can appear in our mind as conflicts. Uh, there can be interpersonal conflicts, obviously, of different kinds, but some of them can be just as I mentioned the guided meditation, simply between friends. You know, uh, we can have a difference of views and we actually can look at those without, sometimes without any uh, reactivity. Yeah. And sometimes there might be reactivity. There can be uh, group conflicts or organizational conflicts and of course conflicts on the level of a society or you know, between nations and so forth. So we looked at, we looked at a wide range. We try, and what I suggested was that the dynamics of conflicts are the same at every level. In other words, if we study conflicts that are more inner conflicts or more interpersonal conflicts, the way of bringing our practice to them will give the same general guidelines as larger conflicts, which means that we can really learn by studying our own experiences with conflicts where they are easier, not so intense. We can learn certain dynamics in those situations. And just like the Olympic diver who doesn't start with the most difficult dive, we learn, we go through a training by working with uh, differences or conflicts which are not overly intense, where we can explore them and work with them. Over this time, uh, I've developed a framework of 10 foundations for working skillfully with conflict. And let's bring that up now on the screen. It's changed some, but I've generally developed uh, 10. I think I'm going to stay with 10. And I'll go over these really, really briefly. And uh, Carlita will put this in the chat, and you can download this if you wish. So the first was ground in the core teachings. And I'll, I'll go over these a little bit more later. But ground in core teachings such as dependent origination, the two arrows, and then three inner foundations. Over time, look at one's own conditioning. 
see what that is. Learn to practice, particularly with difficult emotions, thoughts, narratives, body states, using mindfulness and other practices. Number fourth, bring in the heart practices. Metta, compassion, forgiveness, joy can play a very important role. And then what I identified as six more outer foundations. The fifth of these foundations is remember the teachings and practices that basically say we all, every human being certainly, has Buddha nature, all have the potential for awakening, all are worthy of care, respect, kindness, and so forth. That every being has the spirit of awakening and the potential of awakening. And this is related in the sixth foundation to having a vision in terms of conflict of what we might call universal metta, what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called the beloved community, what conflict workers call the win-win model, where we try to meet the genuine and deep needs and interests of everyone concerned. Everyone matters, as it were. were. We move away from the model of win and lose. The seventh related foundation is that we bring the core ethical principles into play in working with conflicts, non-harming, non-violence, the other ethical precepts, and these can be sometimes expressed in, you know, for example, for an organization or group in guidelines which we use, maybe to, you know, to speak respectfully, to treat everyone with empathy and kindness and so forth. And the eighth uh, foundation, very crucial, empathy is completely central. Having an empathic understanding of the person, as it were, on the other side, so to speak, in the conflict. The ninth related to this is developing skillful speech practice, working with speech practice, uh, working with the different guidelines and so forth. And the tenth is bringing this all into a larger scale at the level of society, bringing in the ethical principles, particularly through nonviolent social action. So we can let go of the slide now. And that will put in the, that's what we've worked with the last three sessions. And I'll come back to that. And basically what I chose to do for today, what I mentioned last time, is I actually want to apply these 10 foundations to the conflict in Israel-Palestine. So I thought I'd, you know, just after dealing with moderate level personal stuff, take on an easy one. Okay, no, not really. And, but I uh, really want to go into the situation being guided by these 10 foundations and remembering that uh, we're, what I want to do is approach the situation as part of our practice. Not so much giving an external analysis, but saying, how do we approach this as a part of our practice? Seeing the situation through a Buddhist lens. And this can be, this can be challenging and difficult, can be a test of our practice very much. You know, I've been in touch with uh, Israeli Buddhist teacher friends uh, and they talk about the challenges in their Sangha and they have differences in their Sangha. How do they work with that? You know, they have uh, people who've been, uh, who are Buddhist practitioners who've been taken in to the military, you know, and have gone uh, to Gaza and who are very, very conflicted. How do I bring compassion in? If I bring compassion in, I heard from about one person, I'll die, you know, uh, and so forth. Uh, how do I keep a sense of Buddhist practice going when others are all on the side of violence and so forth? So, you know, for, and for, for me, how do, we, how do we keep our practice going when it seems 
like everyone or a large number of people want to take sides. You know, want to take sides. There's a lot of reactivity that I find, a lot of uh, very charged language. So what I want to suggest is that in this context, I'm going to try to take, go into this very sensitive and often charged territory as carefully as I can on the basis of our practice, on the basis of these uh, 10 guidelines. And what I want to suggest is also that in our discussion that we stay with the guidelines of having everything be part of our practice, having a commitment to respectful speech, uh, listening, empathy, care, while it can be perfectly fine to have uh, disagreement. And um, I'll just mention that, as some of you know, I've, I've been teaching on the theme of conflict for a number of years. It's been a very important topic for me. And I'm going to tell the story later of an experience I had where I was invited to give a talk on bringing our practice to conflict in a place called Jerusalem in 2019. So Donald gave a talk on conflict in Jerusalem in 2019, and things didn't happen as I had expected them to happen and planned to happen. And I'll come back to that story later. Okay. But just a little bit of a, a preview. It was an interesting experience. So I thought I'd just also very briefly give my own, a little bit of my own background in going into this territory. You know, um, my grandparents were all immigrants. Uh, my grandparents all Jewish. My ancestry is Jewish. And my grandparents were all immigrants from Eastern Europe, leaving conditions of you know, major oppression, basically. You know, my one of my grandfathers left because he had been threatened with having to be in the Russian army for 25 years as a young man, which happened often with Jewish young men, you know, some time ago. And so that's part of, that's part of my background. And I also had two, uh, two long visits to uh, Israel, invited to teach there in 2017 and 19, six-week trips, where I also made three trips to the West Bank and was brought in and met uh, Palestinian friends through Israeli friends, uh, particularly one uh, friend who um, spoke Arabic. So I was brought into, for example, uh, a Ramadan celebration with an extended family uh, living in a community uh, in the West Bank, not so far from Jerusalem, and other trips to uh, East Jerusalem, to Bethlehem and surroundings and so forth. And uh, those experiences were very important and, and somewhat shocking just to see the reality on the ground there. And since then, I have felt actually committed to help find really constructive solutions. So I've helped in small ways to um, contribute. You know, particularly, I, I've been invited by the Israeli Insight Meditation community to help the teachers there bring teaching about Israel-Palestine into their own Dharma talks and into their own teaching. You know, although a lot of the Israeli teachers have been activists, generally it hasn't gone into the Dharma teaching. So I was asked to help with that. And I've also helped with some, particularly with some fundraising for a center in the West Bank actually a mindfulness center developed by a Palestinian student of Thich Nhat Hanh, who uh, is developing a center called the Garden of Hope, you know, as a place to bring people together. 
someone named Isa Suf. Very, very inspiring. Okay? So that's a little bit of my personal background. And I'll go with the 10 foundations now. And I'll try not to take too long on these so I can, we can actually have a good chunk of discussion. Okay? So I'll go through the 10 foundations that I mentioned. The first is ground in the core teachings. And here we want to ground in the teachings of dependent origination, the teachings about the origins of dukkha, you know, which I've given here on Wednesdays a number of times, the nature of reactivity, how reactivity develops. Uh, remember the teaching of the two arrows, which says that when we're not aware, when we're not mindful, we will tend, when there's something painful, to go into reactivity and to try to push away in whatever way possible what's painful. And we will be in a cycle of reactivity, reacting to what's painful. And that can happen on an individual level. I can go into blaming myself for something bad that happened. It can happen interpersonally. It can happen on a more social level. And so we can see that, and I, as I mentioned when I've taught on the two arrows, a lot of conflicts are basically defined by the two arrows teaching. We have received pain. We will inflict pain on you. And the goal of practice is to get out of that cycle, right? To, you know, move out of that cycle. And we can see when we look at the history that there's been so much pain that's come out of past pain. You know, that uh, Jewish people for centuries and millennia have received what we call usually anti-Semitism, oppression, and out of that oppression, particularly in Europe, came the idea supported by the British and eventually the United States to have a Jewish homeland in what we would call Israel-Palestine. That came out of the pain of years of anti-Semitism and eventually the Holocaust, right? Out of that came the UN development of Israel as a country. And during that time, during the 30 years that went between uh, 1917 and the British Balfour Declaration and 1947 with the UN vote to have a state of Israel, generally speaking, the considerations of the Palestinians were not really very much uh, observed. And I think there was even, I remember from studying the Balfour Declaration from 1917, there was a line that said something like, the considerations of the Palestinians will not be taken into account, right? And so you have an arrow and shooting, in a sense, a second arrow, and then that leading to what happened in 1947 and 48 and what the Palestinians call uh, the Nakba. So painful situations leading to more painful situations leading to more painful situations. One way I've heard it said is that Jews jumped out of the burning building of Europe and landed on the Palestinians, right? And so we can have maybe a sense of uh, that, those dynamics and have a sense of how the teachings help us make sense of it. The two arrows teaching, dependent origination, the same dynamics keep on getting repeated. You know, I looked at, uh, for example, uh, the work of one of the people I studied with, who I mentioned, Johann Galtung, one of the great peacemakers in the world. 
And he had a book which was published, I think in 2003. And part of the book was he gave, he looked at 45 conflicts in the world and gave 45 analyses and pointing to how to resolve them. And one of his analyses was of Israel-Palestine. And this is what he said. This is from an analysis from the year 2000. Listen to this. The prognosis and the analysis are the same as 50 years ago. Oscillation between the structural violence of occupation and the direct violence of bombs and bombing, terror and torture. Also, the probability of the escalation of the civil war within Israel between moderates and fundamentalists. Does that echo? Is there, are there the same dynamics today, I would say? That was an analysis from the year 2000. When you don't deal with the two arrows, the dynamics keep happening. No, so we can see that. And so that can be a way of understanding. And then we go to the inner foundations, because again, this is really about our practice. How do we practice with the situation? Number one, or the first, this is the second foundation, look at one's own inner conditioning. How do I approach the situation? Am I avoidant of conflict? Do I go right into it and sort of have attitudes and reactivity? How do I work with that? How do I know my own conditioning? Again, as I've mentioned, my own personal conditioning is to be avoidant of conflict. So it's something I've been working with for some time. That's a crucial part of practice. And then very fundamentally, the third foundation is to practice with our emotions, our thoughts, our body states. This is a big part of our practice and where we can have tremendous resources. And most, you know, most generally, so crucial, how do I practice with difficult emotions? And sometimes we need to deliberately go into them. How many people in relation to all this experience some numbness, right? That we're just listening to the news and there's just a lot of numbness. Very, very common. And so it can be helpful to deliberately do something like what we did in the guided meditation. Come from a place of mindfulness, some stability of mind, and then go into what some of the emotions are, you know. And I've been doing this some in my own experience, and I have some groups where we do this. And it's been really, really crucial. I have found that, you know, for me, I have a certain amount of numbness. But then when I go into the emotions that are there, I find that there's a lot of sadness. And really, really crucial to be with that sadness and hang out with it. You know, and to bring mindfulness to it, be with it, watch what the stories are. Watch what the narratives are. Sometimes, personally, I have also felt uh, the emotions I've also been able to identify in myself, also quite a bit of loneliness. You know, just feeling like everyone's taking sides. There's so much reactivity. I'm trying in my own being and in my teaching to maintain a connection with the practice, a connection with caring for everyone, even while recognizing I didn't mention this earlier, even while caring for everyone, recognizing a severe asymmetry of power, right? But still a loneliness that I have felt that really is really helpful to go into and feel, because that can kind of be those emotions when we don't go into them can be paralyzing or go into numbness. So doing that, doing that practice, you know, and also recognizing that for some of us, for many people, this would be true particularly of Israelis and Palestinians, but also for many Jewish people, there's a, there's a vast background of trauma, of intergenerational trauma. You know, that, uh, you know, you can hear for Israelis the echoes of the Holocaust, right? You can see that in the comments and in the news. And 
for the Palestinians, a background of great trauma. And when people have traumatic activation, one can't be in the present moment. And so really, really crucial if there's trauma. And I, you know, I'm in uh, one group with Jewish Buddhist practitioners. And last Sunday, we explored experientially some of what people were experiencing. And there was a lot of trauma that people were reporting and going into and being able to just share in, we did this in small groups and it could actually work. And this is a comment from uh, Michael Lerner, Rabbi Michael Lerner, who I have found one of the most helpful commentators over the years. He wrote a very book, good book called Healing Israel-Palestine. This is what he said, because of the trauma each side has become blind to the other's legitimate needs. The eyes of both Israelis and Palestinians are so glazed over with the immediacy of painful historical memories that they have not been able to envision new possibilities in their relationship that might bring both communities the peace they actually desire. Huge traumas have constricted the ability of both to see and act upon what is in their best interests. The task is to heal the trauma. That healing is not just a political or psychological project, but also a spiritual project. And so to give room for being with the difficult experience is really crucial. The fourth foundation is to bring in the heart practices. Really crucial, even to do that for a small time to bring in compassion, to bring in loving kindness, partly as a way of um, keeping balance, partly as a way of staying in one's heart. Numbness means that the heart gets covered over. It's a very, very likely tendency with difficult situations. So how do we keep with our heart practices? And how do we keep with the spirit of metta to bring the kind heart, to bring kindness to all beings? That's the aspiration. Can, we can remember from the metta sutta, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, may all beings be at ease. How do we keep the spirit of metta when we hear reports of violence? Not easy, right? How do we keep some connection to our kind hearts? And I think partly in all of this, something I haven't mentioned is I think we have to be careful about what we take in and how much we take in. There can be an addictive quality to hearing news. Sometimes we can get enough. I've studied this in myself. How many people are actually setting some limits for yourself on the news? I think that can be, that can be wise. Then the, what I've called the more outer foundations. The number five, remembering the teachings that all beings have Buddha nature. How do you remember that in relation to a conflict, right? These are all beings with the potential for awakening who have deep in their being something very precious and sacred. How do we avoid the dehumanization, which is necessary, I think, for violence to occur? How do we keep this perspective? How do we remember that at the core of all beings is love and wisdom and something that the Buddha said was a radiant nature. Our core nature is radiant. And we can find something like this perspective even in the core teachings of Judaism and Islam. You know, and I would say that often these teachings are not so near. The teachings from Exodus, you shall not wrong a stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. 
the Jewish text from called the Zohar, a mystical text. The world shall be built on love. By this the world endures. That's quoting from the Psalms. We could also talk about the passion for social justice among the prophets. From the Islamic tradition, the prophet Muhammad said, Shall I not, not tell you of something which, if you do it, you will love one another? Spread the greetings of peace among yourselves. Or from Rumi, the great Islamic poet, Love is the water of life. Drink it down with heart and soul. And related is the sixth foundation, a vision. This is in a, in a conflict. Having the vision of universal metta, the beloved community from Dr. King, the win-win model where we approach a conflict and try to move towards a situation in which the deep and genuine needs of all concerned are met. Trying to move away from the win-lose model of conflict in which there are two opposites and we want only one to win. Again, in the situation of Israel-Palestine, knowing that there's an asymmetry of power. In fact, when I studied working with conflict with Dr. Uh, or with, yeah, Dr. Galtung, he had a very strong emphasis in any kind of conflict work, whether interpersonal or in an organization or in a society, really, really crucial in coming to this win-win model to reduce as much as possible the effects of the asymmetry of power, to reduce the influence of power considerations as much as possible. That's what a peace worker does in working with conflict. Otherwise, the power differential the power differentials will have too much influence. So you want to try to minimize that as much as possible. Again, from Dr. King, the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. And so having that vision of reconciliation. So I've been inspired by groups and projects, and there are a lot of them, but they don't make the newspapers of those who are working for reconciliation. I was thinking of the group, there's a group called Combatants for Peace, a group of former Israeli soldiers, former Palestinian, uh, former Palestinians who either engaged in or, or uh, supported violence, who have got together and agreed to work together for nonviolent change. You can look them up on the web, Combatants for Peace. We are a group of Palestinians and Israelis who have taken an active part in the cycle of violence. We have in the past raised weapons we have established combatants for peace on the basis of nonviolent principles. We are working together to promote peace. We be, believe that such communities can serve as a role model for both people, dem demonstrating through action that there is a real alternative to the cycle of violence. Another group is called Families of the Bereaved. Some of you probably know this. Families who have lost uh, family members to the violence, Israeli and Palestinian, who get together. Founded in 1995 by an Israeli named Yitzhak Frankenthal, a year after his 19-year-old son was killed by Hamas. He said, despite my pain, the only ethical response to my loss is to try to prevent further death and suffering. And he, there are now 650 Israeli and Palestinian families collaborating together. Some of you may know there have been movies made of their work. And unfortunately, 
the right-wing Israeli government has said that they will not be allowed to meet in schools anymore. It shows you some of the craziness. I mentioned the work of Isa Souf, who established the Garden of Hope in the West Bank, bringing together Israelis and Palestinians, teaching mindfulness in the spirit of Thich Nhat Hanh. Or friends of mine who are Israeli Buddhist teachers going every day during the violence and collaborating with Palestinian friends in the olive harvest. And joining, joining together, they say it is not much, but it makes a difference, holding the tragedy together, nourishing in each other and in the world our strong commitment to a better world. So that's the sixth foundation. Seventh foundation, quite similar, having the commitment to bring our ethics of non-harming into the situation. So it leads to a commitment to nonviolence, can be reflected in guidelines for groups. I'm thinking of some of the people I mentioned and also different nonviolent activists. You know, I think of the Palestinian nonviolent activist Mubarak Awad. He says, this was recent. He said, each party must stop using violence and must commit to living and working with each other as neighbors. Both are motivated by perceptions of security and historical identity. Another Palestinian nonviolent activist. Nonviolence is the art of our humanity, and I know how hard it is these days to practice, especially with the ever-increasing number of victims and the failure of hope for a peaceful resolution. I know that nonviolent activism is the only path to solution because it gives purpose and meaning to our difficult daily existence. The Eighth Foundation, Empathy. Listening to everyone, listening for what is deeper, maybe beneath the surface of views or attitudes. Listening even, I would say, beneath the violence is, some, is a value of security or a value of justice or freedom. Can we listen with empathy? And remembering when we went, when we looked at empathy, it's really crucial to have a distinction between the need and the strategy. If you remember that from our, our work with wise speech, using the, the, the model of nonviolent communication and the need is what's genuine. It can be the need for security or for freedom or justice. And the strategy may be very, very unskillful. I've mentioned the example of an alcoholic can have a need for peace, very genuine. The strategy may be very unskillful. That's something, a really crucial dimension of empathy in conflicts is to see that there can often whether another person or a nation be a deeply unskillful strategy, but we can have some empathy with the underlying uh, deep need, which can be, can be valid. This is, this is what Thich Nhat Hanh said during the Vietnam War, or about the Vietnam War. He said, we were able to understand the suffering of both sides. We try to be open to both, to understand this side and to understand that side, to be one with them. That is why we did not take a side, even though the whole world took sides. We wanted reconciliation. Reconciliation is to understand both sides. Again, that can be very rare. And again, always remembering the asymmetry of power. And then the ninth foundation, I'm doing okay with my timing, and we'll get to discussion. The ninth foundation is bringing in all of this skillful speech, being present, bringing our mindfulness to what's going on in our experience, working with the Buddha's guidelines to be truthful, to be helpful, to keep the kind heart there, and to have good timing and appropriateness. 
How do we bring skillful speech into conflict situations? How do we connect it also with, with the empathy? And then lastly, which we've already covered some, bringing all of this to a larger social dimension, <clears throat> the commitment to nonviolent social action, which I've mentioned, you know, and to uh, really commit to that as, you know, as much as is possible and to, to bring that in. You know, the comment attributed to Gandhi, an eye for an eye keeps the whole world blind. You know, uh, you know, Dr. King also sometimes used that phrase. He said, violence is a descending spiral ending in destruction for all. The old law of an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. It is immoral because it seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than win the opponent's understanding. King also said, if we do an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we will be a blind and toothless nation. He was bringing this to the US. So let me finish with a quotation from a friend of mine, uh, Stephen Folder, who is the senior insight meditation teacher in Israel, the founder of Tovana in Israel, who for several decades did collaborative work with Palestinians. And uh, we were talking last Saturday, a few days ago, and uh, he said he'd be interested in coming on on Wednesday. So I've invited him to talk with, uh, with our group the next time that, we, that, we, that I'm here, which will be December 20th. So Stephen will be, we're not, we're not sure what we'll talk about, uh, but I'll be inviting Stephen to meet with us uh, next time to talk about practice. This is what he said. He's a very dedicated practitioner, but he also has brought this into uh, what's been happening there. He said, over many years, I and colleagues have been bringing groups of Israelis to the West Bank to spend a weekend on peacemaking workshops with Palestinians at times when the dominant voices said that peace was impossible and that only violence and suppression worked. We found that our tools of deep listening, sharing our pain and daily life experiences, and being in each other's shoes created a lasting bond and showed all of us that peace was possible. The truth of our shared vulnerability created an opportunity for transformation. We also did a large number of quiet peace walks throughout the region, Israelis and Palestinians, Jews and Arabs, de demonstrating what peacefulness was like at times when it was forgotten. Did it make a difference? Yes, like a candle that brings a small light, yet one that can make a real difference in a totally dark room. What can you and others who are outside of the region do to help? Kindness is the opposite of hate and violence. Connect with the compassion in your hearts and know that compassion is unlimited. It does not have one address. Radiate compassion for all sides and for ourselves as we too are vulnerable beings. And let it work through us and feed actions out in the world whenever we have an opportunity. Keep the flame burning. So let me stop there with these 10 foundations and invite a minute or two of reflection. What might have touched you? What might you like to share even about some of your own observations of conflicts on a different level, interpersonal or inner conflicts and the principles? Let's sit with whatever's there for you from relating to this larger situation. See whether any questions are there, any sharing. We'll, we'll sit silently for a minute or two.
So let me now invite anyone who'd like to share, to speak. And I want to remember also to, um, maybe I'll tell that story first and then we'll open up in discussion. I forgot to bring in the story. What happened? I was teaching on conflict. I was invited to give a talk on conflict in Jerusalem. Whoa. A little bit pretentious, huh? Donald from the U.S. giving a talk. My gosh. And um, I didn't have my 10 points worked out at that point. So it was probably a little bit less systematic. And there were probably 30 or 40 people there. There was a, a young man who kept interrupting me. He kept on jumping in and interrupting. And I wasn't quite sure what to do. You know, I could have tried to say, you know, could you, could you just uh, hold off for a while and, uh, you know, and let me get on with the talk. And I think he was sometimes disagreeing, but he kept on interrupting. At a certain point, I had the insight. I think I might be teaching on conflict more through how I relate to this person than through my words. It was helpful to have that insight. <laughs> so I didn't try to say, will you just let me finish my talk? I didn't go there. But I, I said, I think I need to lead with empathy. And so we actually talked for a little while. I stopped going through my talk and I tried to listen with empathy to what he had to say. And we did this for a little while and something seemed to resolve and land, and he stayed there for the rest of the talk, and he didn't interrupt anymore. And several people there did say, I think I learned more from how you acted with that guy than from your words, right? It was interesting, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that that happened here. <laughs> Test me again, right? But uh, in fact, let me, let me open things up and invite people. We'll Invite, it's fine to have uh, disagreements, but let me invite that quality of care and kindness and respect. Anyone want to share something, ask a question, ask for clarification, whatever you'd like. You can either raise your hand physically, I can see you, or use the raised hand function. Could be really to share anything related to this. Yeah, please, uh, Amanda. Yeah, you'll have to unmute, I think. Yeah. Right. I thought I had, but I hadn't. Thank you. Um, I first wanted to say thank you so much for this talk. I, when you first prompted us to check in uh, on this topic, I just immediately felt like. I feel so hopeless, mm. so hopeless for Israel and Palestine. It just feels like there's, there's just fault and innocence on both sides. And um, it's so much easier for me <laughs> to think about Ukraine because it feels more cut and dry to me. It feels like, well, one side is clearly more innocent and one side is clearly more at fault in mm. my view. So for me, it's, it's disappointing that the people of Israel, of uh, Ukraine are in my experience, getting less attention now that this other situation has arisen in the world. Um, but just it just seems very intractable and hopeless to me. And yet, hearing you talk about it and focusing on these ethical practices is like inherently hopeful. Hmm. <laughs> and I just really appreciate that. And even though this this particular situation isn't my path, it's still very informative for the the conflicts that I am part of. And yeah. 
contributing to. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Amanda. I think, again, this is where our practice can be so crucial. Notice the narratives. You know, it could be hopelessness, right? Which is, of course, very understandable when you look at the history. You know, and, you know, like I, I read that uh, analysis from the year 2000, which could have been written yesterday, right? Same yeah. basic, it's been just going on. But to watch one's narratives, and because, you know, history is mysterious. You know, we can see sometimes things seem intractable in, in, on a large scale, and sometimes they change. Who would have guessed that the Soviet Union would end at a certain point in history, yeah. right? Uh, you know, one week before, people would have said it's hopeless, right? Or how South Africa changed very rapidly, right? And so things do happen quickly. I, it is, it is very hard. Uh, but I, you know, for me, that's why it's really important to uh, keep the vision, because the vision, in some ways, is straightforward. You know, I didn't go into this in so much, but it's not so hard to know what a real solution is. You know, in in my view, probably some version of a two-state solution with a lot of, you know, particularly a lot of generosity, uh, even possibly from neighboring countries to give more land to the Palestinians, right? You know, um, so it's not so hard to imagine that. So I think it's really crucial to focus on those groups or those people who are keeping that vision. That's what I tried to do in this talk, you know, both Israeli and Palestinian voices, and then those amazing groups where people come together, the collaborators, the combatants for peace and families of the bereaved, uh, doing amazing work. Yeah. 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 Thanks, thank you. I, I just, I do have a friend who is Jewish and was in Israel doing peacekeeping work on her way to spend a few months in Palestine, who was there on October, is it the 6th or the 7th? 7th anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's really sad. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And you can either raise your hand or use the raised hand function. I can see you if you raise your hand. And again, uh, I want to totally welcome anyone with uh, a so-called half-baked thought. doesn't have to be fully baked. Because there's probably, if you have some thoughts bubbling, it's probably something important and I can help uh, bring it out or articulate it if that's useful. Uh, Linda, do you have something? Sorry, Donald, I saw Stephen. Oh, Stephen, please, yeah. I have something that's half-baked. So the notion that you brought up of not taking sides, of being neutral, it can be quite challenging. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so we have that quotation from Thich Nhat Hanh, right, from the Vietnam War, and I think it's I think it's avoiding the polarity of just having all of one's energy with one side. You know, it's 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 having the vision that in every conflict we want to meet the needs, as it were, of both sides, and even if we can move away from the way that something gets structured as a polarity with two sides, you know, and try to, try to, uh, that's where the empathy practice is so important. We want to uh, have empathy and see, you know, in this situation, that there are deeply genuine needs on both sides. That's a vehicle to get there, right? The, the empathy and the compassion are ways that we can get there. It's not very hard to see that there are really crucial values and needs for both Israelis and Palestinians, right? It's not just one, right? Israelis, security, uh, you know, I would say some sense of having their, uh, you know, long, long-term security and, uh, you know, more or less 
you know, something like, uh, you know, having aspects of something like a Jewish homeland, I think is crucial. And for Palestinians, it's justice, sovereignty, uh, it's also land. It's having also having their own land for their own, uh, basically their own country, right? And so there are uh, need, deep needs on both sides and a lot, you know, in a lot of ways that events of the last 20, 40 years have made meeting the needs of both sides way more difficult, right? You know, and there, there also, I would say, are extremists on both sides who just want to say, we want to win, we want everything. We want, you know, I would say extremists who are Israelis who say, we want the entire land just for ourselves, right? That's, that's, uh, that's taking sides in an extreme way. Or the extremists maybe on the other side who are saying, we want uh, the end of Israel, right? That would be the extremists on the other side. So how do we recognize? So I think empathy plays a crucial role, empathy and compassion, and really recognizing there are deep needs on both sides, and the violence doesn't help us get any closer to meeting those needs. Is that, how's that, Stephen? Yes, thank you. That was very helpful. Yeah, great. And Nancy, please. Something popped into my head that was prompted by Stephen's question about how do you avoid taking sides. Yeah. And what popped into my head was that I can focus my judgments and opinions not on the people, but on, but on the actions. Mm -hmm. And so you can be um, critical of violence from either side and not necessarily attach a negative opinion or a negative value to the people who are committing those things. Yeah. Separate the action from the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that in a way is very close to that distinction between an underlying need and the strategy. And one can deeply criticize the strategies. Again, need is sometimes a confusing word, but it, it relates to what I was mentioning just now with Stephen, you know, the deep need for security or for justice or for freedom and distinguishing that by the strategy that is sometimes used to try to advance towards the goal, right? And that's the same thing as one criticizing the action, but in this case, uh, you know, not as it were, what, uh, having no consideration for the Buddha nature of the person who had an unskillful action. You know, it was, it was like that story, because my mom, remember the story that I told, I think a long time ago, that my mom uh, brought us up with that. She said, I'm going to criticize sometimes your actions, but I still love you. And she, and she had this situation that I heard from my brother, where she said, she had said to him, he had done something like teasing other kids that, she didn't like, and she said, uh, you know, you know, I love you very much, but I don't like what you just did. And my brother, who was five, said, don't talk to me like a psychologist, just spank me like the other mothers do. <laughs> anyway, so, but that was, uh, I think that distinction is really crucial that we, you know, and it's something we can do in our daily lives. Can we still hold you know, this is in our loving-kindness practice. This is where we bring our loving-kindness to the so-called difficult person, right? Can I, still have, can I still have my heart open even though someone has done something unskillful? Not easy, right? But that's, that's why we have a practice. That's why we really want to bring in the practice. Yeah. Thanks, Nancy. Maybe in last one, uh, Erica, please. Hi. Thanks so much. My audio is okay. First time I've used it. You're good, yeah. Okay, so I really appreciated the, the so much of what's been said all the way through. But when I think about sitting with that, what's here with the loneliness of maybe taking a nonviolence stance, yeah. Um, that that and everything else that's just been said, and you really highlighted the imbalance of power, which was important to me. 
uh, you know, understand needs versus strategies, talking about the behaviors and not the people. When I, I, what I'm looking for is a bit of support or a suggestion on a skillful behavior for the moment that I um, might want to say nonviolence, you know, it's not passive. Let's talk about nonviolence. And someone else says, you even saying nonviolence means that you don't get it. Like they just, it's just, that's it. You don't get it if you believe in nonviolence. And it sounds like I'm trying to both sides and I'm not connect. I'm, I'm not Jewish or Palestinian, yeah. but I care very deeply about being able to have these conversations in a way that works. And so I'm just wondering how does a person manage that moment? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, thank you. It's a great question, Erica. Thank you so much. Um, a few things come to mind. Um, first to know that a lot of people at this time are caught up in reactivity and they might not have mo much interest in listening to you. I'm sorry to say that, but that is the case a lot. And so you maybe, it depends on the relationship that you have and who's saying it, but you can really sometimes tell, is a person interested in listening empathically to you? In the best case scenario, the answer would be yes, but sometimes there might not be much interest. And so you want to clarify that. And with some relationships where someone might be into reactivity, but might actually, if you name that, just say, you know, I, I have some thoughts. I really would love if you can just listen to me. Would you be willing to do that? And the person may say no, <laughs> and the person might say yes. So that's, that's one thing. Another thing I think would be to, I mean, you could, uh, if you want to, talk about the whole history of nonviolence. I don't know if you want to go there. But you could, I think, particularly point out the power of, non, of Palestinian nonviolent activists and Israeli nonviolent activists and maybe some of these groups and just say, did you know about combatants for peace? Did you know about families of the bereaved? Do you know about, uh, you know, there's a family, the Awad family coming from Bethlehem, Mubarak Awad, Sami Awad, who are dedicated nonviolent activists and who are Palestinian. And Mubarak Awad was one of the leaders of the first intifada. You know, and unfortunately, Israel kicked him out of the country and leaving it open to people who are not nonviolent to be leaders, right? So I think those would be some of the strategies I would take, but recognizing that it may not be possible to have an open dialogue where there's empathy on both sides. But I think maybe bringing that up and seeing whether that's possible. So how's that sound, Erica? Very helpful. Lovely starting place. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Great, so we'll finish now. Let me just uh, see what's there in your heart, your mind, how you might take what we explored further. Any intentions coming out of our morning? And then thank you so much for your kind attention. And what I found a really, um, really helpful discussion. I could have kept going for a while with it, but um, really important uh, discernments and questions, reflections. We'll end with a dedication of merit. May our time together be of benefit to all beings without exception, knowing that we are part of all beings and that all of us are sacred beings with the mind and heart of awakening, even if it hasn't fully manifested.
So thank you so much. Thank you, Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Yay. And so feel free to uh, unmute. We can say goodbye to each other. Thank you so much, Carlita. Thank you. Thank you for this talk. My pleasure. Thank you, Donald. Bye, everybody. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Donald. Bye-bye. Till next time. everybody. And I'll, I'll bring Stephen on December 20th. Yeah. Uh, See you then. Okay. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, thanks again, Carlita. Thank you so much, Donald. Be well. Be well. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.